episode 32 of the Bowery Boys, the Museum of Modern Art. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. Tom is not here with me this week. Maybe we sound a little differently. We're, we're experimenting with different sound equipment. We are very glad to have you here for another show. And I have a very special surprise for you, a very special guest, a Bowery girl. This is Carrie Herschler. We're going to start having some special guests, to, uh, you know, for special topics. Carrie is a designer, an artist, and is a writer, and in fact right now is writing a fiction novel involving some of the Rockefellers. Is that correct? Fictional Rockefeller characters. Fictional. fictional. So, and also because you're a a big aficionado of the Museum of Modern Art, I thought, well, it would be kind of nice to have you on the show and having the two of us riff about how crazy it is. Thank you, Greg. The Museum of Modern Art has basically defined modern art, not just for uh, New York, but for the entire world. So Carrie, give us a little sampling of what we're about to give our listeners this evening. Well, the listeners can get ready to know the art collection of Lily Bliss. Yeah, very, a very. I mean, there's a lot of colorful characters. She really is one of the most colorful. But we're, you'll, you're just going to have a litany of them. Yes, certainly. And the architecture of Yoshio Taniguchi, and the rock solid strength of a dame who refused to take doctor's orders. That's right. All of that and a lot more as we look behind the galleries of the Museum of Modern Art. So, Carrie, I know you have a lot of stuff to talk about on the the sort of precursor or like what happened in New York before there was a, a, mu- a modern art museum because there is a there's a bit of a story there, correct? Oh, yeah. There was a lot happening. S- right. Yeah. yeah. So before I get to that, you know, give them our little situate the listener part of our show. Certainly. It's um, the Museum of Modern Art. And undoubtedly. Would you say one of the most influential museums in the world? It has yes. a, a the new the newest because they just renovated. The, it's two point five million visitors a year. That's an awful lot of people to see an awful lot of art. One hundred fifty thousand individual art pieces. Of course, they're not all displayed at once. No. Um, Twenty two thousand films uh, in the archives. They have three hundred thousand books in the archives. Any some current exhibits that they have there? By the way, um, Lucian Freud. There's a whole thing on the on the Helvetica font. Have you seen that? I oh, love that. Oh yeah, I've I seen love it. it. It's typing. <laughs> yep. On the ninth, they have a, a little section on 19th century magic lantern shows. They have a mini show on Alexander Calder and Ellsworth Kelly. So this is the place. I mean, there's a lot of museums now. Obviously, they have their own philosophies about modern art in New York. But oh, when certainly. this place when this place started, it was basically the only game in town, pretty much, right? So what? Correct. So then, how did how did this come to be? I mean, where did what was New York like at, before this museum came to be? Well, a lot of things were happening at once, but one really big precursor was mm-hmm. the Armory Show of 1913. Oh, right, right. That was sort of the like it sort of it infused modern art into New York City, right? I mean, it was like the big show that kind of got it people's attention. It freaked people out, Greg. <laughs> 
It was a mental jolt. People were confused. People were furious. But then other people loved it. Just tell me a little bit more about it. Who were the some, some of the impressionists, like, post-impressionists, right. the Favs, the Cubists, not realists. That was the problem. That was the controversy. <laughs> so I mean, it was everything that was sort of in people's dreams and the abstractions of the world, but nothing that people were used to. Sort of in literal, America, anyway. Literal. Um, I mean, so some other things that were happening in 1926. So a young woman named Edith Gregert Halperts right. opened the downtown gallery in Greenwich Village. Oh, correct, right. To promote contemporary American art. And we'll see that a little bit later because our dear friend Abby Rockefeller befriended was, her, right, of right, course. Right. And the Whitney Studio Club mm -hmm. was meeting and was the precursor to the Whitney, which actually didn't open until 1931. But oh, okay. the pot was brewing for the okay, Whitney. Right. The okay. Hearn Fund was uh -huh. established in 1906 to support the avant-garde at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Unfortunately, it was languishing. So why was it languishing exactly? The funding wasn't there. The interest wasn't there. And the other th important thing to remember is around 1921, Dada left town. All these New York Dada artists got disgusted and moved to Paris. In the words of Man Ray, Dada cannot happen in New York. <laughs> so uh, uh, New York had almost thumbed its nose up at the really visionary, very unusual art artists of the time is that you're, so basically that's what happened and the it was too weird them. for people right right well i mean that's certainly understandable i mean you, you even look at that stuff today and you have to just put the, yourself in the mindset of like someone you know for 80 90 years beforehand and it's hard to digest like when man ray you know yeah. does a urinal that's turned upside down or whatever you know those kind of i you think know. you mean Deschamps, but Deschamps, okay. i'm sorry <laughs> that's all right the fountain you're I, referring to i'm the fountain I'm, I'm going to preface this by saying that you're a little bit more of the art art history. I didn't take that much art You're history. You're a fan. I'm a fan of art, and um, but I, you know, I'm not a scholar. So th then, basically, you would just. I love the the way that you describe sort of the fertile ground of how the museum came to be. That it was well, there was a lot of personalities right, right. and nothing <laughs> simultaneously. Right. It was it was the museum basically grew from the minds and the personalities of extremely colorful, wealthy people. And the courage. Right. Well, just people mm -hmm. who able to, who decided they could step out because they had money and position to do so. So, of course, uh, the person who spearheads this is none other than Abby, Abby, Ald Rockefeller. Ab Abby Aldrich, Aldrich Rockefeller. She, of course, being the wife of J.D. Rockefeller Jr., basically the, the one of the biggest, the richest men of New York City, biggest philanthropist, and also the he's built so many buildings and contributed so much to New York City. You're making it sound easy for her, Greg. Was it that easy? No, 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 no. It's, oh. I'll get to that. It was not that easy for her. You know, we all have our chains. We all have our <laughs> chains. Abby had her chains. Anyway, let me give you a quick bio of, of Abby because she's kind of the star of our show here. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, she was born in Providence, Rhode Island. She spent a lot of her early years in Europe in 1894. She was there for a long time, and that's where she gained a lot of the love for um, art history. So she married, of course, J.D., in 1901, in 1925 is when she sort of really started beginning 
collecting her modern and European art to sort of decorate her own homes at that particular time. And I'm sure her husband appreciated that, right? Look, he's a, he was a very practical, very moral man, and this seemed to him like something far-fetched and goofy that his wife was doing, I know. So anyway, like, it's, like, like you had said earlier about the downtown gallery, she was really influenced by a, a, this small gallery. So she decided in 1929 that she would make her own little gallery in her apartment. <laughs> Imagine having, you know, you know, several floors of a house and you're like, you know what? My husband doesn't want to see any of this art. I'm just going to put it on like the top floor. My friends can come over like it's my own personal gallery. So that's exactly what she did. It was called the Topside Gallery. It was on the seventh floor of her home on 44th Street. And just a way for her to like express her individuality through this art that she bought. Was this a palatial place, Greg? Well, it it wasn't. Have you seen the – well, the thing is, is the, the, the apartment clearly was, but the room itself, her gallery, kind of looks like – I don't know, like your parents – I mean, a very nice version of your parents' living room. Like, a it den was, from 1973 It was, in, it was intimate. It like. Well, and actually, you know, a lot of her collection was smaller prints and watercolors. She just – she liked things that were more, like, like intimate. She was able to, like, express her personality through those. Of course, being a Rockefeller, because she, she did this, a lot of other rich people around town picked up the same notion of doing these little galleries. That would eventually – these little galleries would eventually feed into the modern art. So that's not an insignificant detail. Um, so anyway, her t- – just uh, very quickly, her tastes – like went into like folk art, modern art. She had a particular fondness for Matisse, and she even went to visit his studio, and she knew him. That's what these these people do. He came to <laughs> dinner. Um, her biography even it says she loved experimentation, and she was really open to new ideas. Now, of course, she's very philanthropic, so she decides that she wants to sort of branch this out a little further and provide a, a, a way to support these artists and to like pre- present this art to the public. But, as I said, her husband's not very supportive of all of this. He, in fact, he opposed it and thought it was too extravagant. Um, he never gave her – she had an, an allowance that, you know, an, right. a little pittance. But, I mean, like a pittance that we would all live healthy on. Uh, of course. But for her, it was, you know, a pittance. and Not enough to buy major works from Paris. No. So, she, you know, she she would have to get the, the funding for – if she's going to really start this museum, she's going to start it from other things. Did you hear about the story when she was bedridden, Greg? Well, no, I, I actually didn't. <laughs> I know this is in her biography, though, correct? I mean, bedridden in quotes. Like, it wasn't, you know, well, maybe she yeah. wasn't really. Well, yeah, I mean, what happened in 1933, basically her husband hired a couple doctors to say she was having a nervous breakdown and that she needed to be in bed for months Two of her sons confirmed that the st- that it was made up. It was literally like a, a fib that he just to sort of like keep her to keep inside. her at home and not working on the museum. There's some, certain things about this man I really like. That's a really awful story. However, it didn't stop her. Um, every no. free moment, well, ever I don't know how she worked it out, but there were moments where she'd pop out of bed, mm-hmm. get as much done as possible, and jump back in bed and do the sick routine. I mean, it was one of the best shows okay. of the 30s. <laughs> so she basically, <laughs> she was able to work. Well, clearly she was able to work she around it. She worked around it. Well, and so tell me about... 
they call them the ladies. Basically, it was like she had a group of friends. A, a, a I couple think of you very mean low, the Daring Dames. The, dare, the Daring Dames, as they say. No, yeah, these were they called the them. press called them. These women convinced her. I mean, they she jumped on board this this train basically of these other people who wanted to do this. These so uppity women united. So Lily, please tell us a little bit about Lily Bliss because I think she sounds very fascinating. Miss Lily Bliss lived with her mother and was an art collector mm-hmm. of sorts. Uh, she was friends with Arthur B. Davies for 20 years. Oh, yes. And she loved his artwork, right? I mean, she was like her biggest patron. She loved his artwork. And also he educated her about collecting. She actually got five pieces from the Armory Show of 1913. And that was the beginning of her collection. And um, however, unfortunately, Fortunately, she had her own somewhat nemesis. Her art was literally out of sight, Greg. And I don't mean as in wowza. I mean, her mother, who she lived with, was not a fan of modern art. So all these wonderful pieces for years were stashed. Oh, out right. of sight. And we should mention really quickly they were they were wealthy. They had a, they had a lot of money, so they had a really big place. She didn't marry. She was not. I, she was a, maybe a handsome a dowdy. woman, a dowdy. I don't want to say spinster because I really do. I'm reading everything about her. I do love her so much, but it does sound like she you know didn't leave the house a, a hip lot. Spinster. She, yeah. <laughs> And also another woman that Abby came in contact with who wasn't loaded like Lily and Abby. Uh Uh, She was upper middle class, possibly. She was an art teacher. Her name is Mary Quinn Sullivan. Okay, so she's the third of the women. She is the third of the women. And she and Abby met. They were interested in psychotherapy for returning soldiers (laughs) from World War One. You know, a hobby. Just sitting around chatting about it. And they were also interested in art, so they became buddies. And so basically, Lily and Mary made up John Dee's worst nightmare, I think, because they totally inspired Abby to get the ball rolling oh, with this sure. museum. Okay. But they hired like a like a president, correct? Uh, what was his name? They did hire a man, mm-hmm. Conjure Goodyear, right. who knew a lot about legal matters. He incorporated the name Museum of Modern Art. Oh, I didn't know that. So he, for he example, came up with, this, with the, the He name. had a lot of know-how. And the other thing that's interesting about him, the reason they were interested in him, was he had a history of defending modern art. He spent $5,000 on a Picasso called La Toilette. He was a member of the board at the Albert Gallery in Buffalo, and he was kicked off the board. And the three ladies decided this is our guy (laughs) he is a defender of modern art okay he knows a lot about the law and he wanted to get back into art himself sure so there was this very famous meeting where the four of them got together in 1929 and decided to do it so what's incredible to me is that so then conjure pulled together a small board of trustees because what he really needed were people who were influential in high society, people that had uh, authority in the art world and people who could pull a collection together because at the start they had nothing. They didn't have a lot. Europe did not believe in modern art in America and Americans did not believe in (laughs) modern art in America. So 
There, it was like these four people and maybe a few others like and that was those were the ones that were pulling for this. So the board of trustees had two very key people. Uh, the first one. And this this guy's hilarious. I, I love this guy. His <laughs> Which name is one? Frank Crowninshield. Oh yeah. Frank Crowninshield is one of these class. I mean, literally, he was a frequent guest at the Algonquin Roundtable. He was a a dandy, a character. Um, he was the creator of Vanity Fair in 1914. Well, that's convenient for people needing publicity. Well, and get this: his roommate and very close friend was none other than Condé Nast. They called him. His nickname was Crowny. The a recent issue of Vanity Fair. I mean, that's maybe not going from like the most unbiased source. Did call him the most cultivated, elegant, and endearing man in publishing, if not in Manhattan. You know, very extravagant. He published Dor- Dorothy Parker's first poem, by the way, in Vanity oh, Fair. Okay. Um, he had a huge collection himself, courageous of, of, guy. of Manets, yeah, of Renoirs, but also very rich. But the <laughs> the thing that was that's key about him is he was hugely connected into the social club of New York City. Okay. His appearance on like the trustees board is almost like a seal of approval for like wealthy, classy New Yorkers to be like, oh, okay, this sounds like it might be kind of a cool idea. Got it. Okay. The second guy, maybe not as flashy, his name was Paul Sachs and he was an art educator who started one uh, started some of the first museum studies courses in the United States. His connection to this is that he knew a lot of people who had a lot of private collections. As a matter of fact, Paul gave the museum its very first drawing it ever had. It was, it was a drawing by George Gross um, from 1926. But the biggest contribution that Paul gave... What was is, that? Well, is the fact that one of his students, he rec- so they had to give make a director for the museum, the man who was basically going to come up with the thesis, if you will, of, of the Museum of Modern Art. And so he recommended a student of his, a 27-year-old, unimposing, skinny, bespeckled student. So his name was Alfred Hamilton Barr Jr., or just Alfred Barr. Sort of if Abby was the matronly figure of the museum, Barr was sort of the hands-on guy and spearheaded a lot of these great shows. He imprinted his own vision of modern art onto this museum. And what I find kind of cool is that he expanded what we, what the words modern art even means. He, to him, it included film, it included design, architecture, photography, and he actively, purposefully expand used that definition to like when he would do these exhibits. And he shocked a lot of people. And by the collection things. exploded. Oh yes, and today MoMA reflects reflects the, what he's doing right now. It's just really incredible that he was so young, and I guess maybe they needed someone that was so young who had like a real unusual vision. We'll talk about him a little bit later again, but he. I just wanted to mention he's so influential in the modern art scene that when Piet Mondrian died. He, yes. he made the funeral arrangements for Mondrian when he died in 1944. Because like, he knew, he knew, he knew how to arrange a show. <laughs> exactly. No, of an artist. No he matter knew how to do art. a retrospective. <laughs> um, exactly. So anyway, so the opening. Okay, so we're finally at the opening. So they've got it all together. They've got all the important people together. It's the opening of the Museum of Modern Art on November 7th, 1929. Unfortunately, it's about nine days after the stock market crash. And so a little unseemly to be opening sort of a new museum of 
oddball art, as they would say. Luckily, though, the first location was a little modest, shall we say. Okay. Uh, it was at the Heck the Hexter Building. Hexter. I, think, I think I'm saying that Hexter Building on Fifth and Fifty Seventh Street. It was six galleries. On the 12th floor, they weren't ringing this in with like the biggest, most dramatic way at first. Okay. But starting at least from the first show, they had some major shows that happened here throughout the 30s. Isn't that correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, major. It went back and forth between smash successes and total controversies. Oh, that's that's all you need to really get something started. Yeah. The first show was Cezanne Gagon. The first show was Gauguin. The first show was Cezanne, Gauguin, Surratt, and Van Gogh, Mm -hmm. and it was a smash success. Okay. Thousands of people rode the elevator to the 12th floor. Admission was free. And the second exhibit, well, the second exhibit, (laughs) 19 Living Americans, was not so pleasant. The third exhibit was Painting in Paris, and some said it was the most important show since the Armory. The 15th exhibit was the first exhibit inspired by a certain Philip Johnson. Oh, this is the 1932 show of Modern Architecture, correct? Exactly. And it showed off the international style. Do you know, by the way, you, I mean, you, you, I'm sorry, you may just be about to say this, but I didn't realize that the Alfred Barr coined the term international style. I didn't know that either, but I wouldn't be surprised. Well, no, I mean, I mean he was a... working off the seat of his pants, this guy, <laughs> and doing a pretty good job. Yeah. I, no, I did not know that. But what I did know is that it was the first traveling exhibition oh, ever mounted by the museum. So this is when other Americans start to get pulled in to the MoMA, even Americans who weren't living in New York City. It's interesting it was an architecture show. Um, the 22nd show was the American folk art show, The Art of the Common Man in America. It was the first one of its kind. Folk art was still a joke at mm-hmm. that point, it was laughable. The it's, public well, sometimes they think it it's seriously. still a joke now. I mean, sometimes, uh, you know, it's always a very difficult art form to get across. And on November 4th, 1935, the Vincent Van Gogh show opened. There were lines to Fifth Avenue. Mrs. Oh. Roosevelt visited twice. And it was literally one of the biggest shows of any one particular artist. It had like 66 paintings. It had 50 drawings. I mean, most of them on loan from the Netherlands. Most oh, right. of the stuff oh, is, know. you know. So what we have to put in perspective, though, is they had all of these incredible, amazing shows throughout the 30s. But they weren't all in one place. As a matter of fact, they were all over the place. At one time, they were even... In, the, in 1937, they were in the basement of the Time and Life building. What they, I mean, isn't this Still getting basement? no respect. The reason they had to move around a lot was the whim of the sponsors. You have to remember here, uh, there still was no support, major support. So whoever could support and lend a space... That's where mm-hmm. the museum went. So they finally got a permanent location in 1939. It was a townhouse that was owned by the Rockefellers on West 53rd Street. It was open, you know, 10-year anniversary. 
And the building was designed by Philip Johnson, who, you know, you had just mentioned was part of the architecture exhibit just a few years before. It was designed by Philip Johnson and Edward Durrell Stone and in, of course, the international style that was trumpeted so much at that particular exhibit. The, the first show there was called Art in Our Time, which I guess was sort of a, a survey of modern art. But what I think is probably the most important show that they've I'm, I'm just going to say it. Ever. Probably the most important show they have ever had ever. at the Museum of Modern Art is the Picasso show of November of 1939. I think you'll agree with me. This was, by the way, Alfred Barr's defining achievement as a, as a director for the museum. Picasso was his favorite artist. He wanted to really ensure his significance because he really did think that Picasso was the most important, influential voice in art. So he not – this show, it not only it, – because it was so big and influential and – just the way it was put together was so important. It not only brought Picasso himself a greater international significance, it even defined how you do retrospectives in museums. Yes. It even like rewrote the book, how to arrange art and how to tell these narratives. So, I mean, so this might be kind of strange for me to follow this up with, but then Nelson Rockefeller actually took Barr, didn't demote him, but just basically Barr was no longer the director shortly after this uh, of the of the museum but he stayed on as an advisor of MoMA and all the way up until 1968 poor Abby died in 1948 in 1957 Abby was has now been kind of immortalized at the museum with the Abby Aldrich Rockefeller sculpture garden and which is still there so let's wrap this up to modern time because what many New Yorkers know about is the very dramatic and very time-consuming, but in some respects, a very worthwhile renovation. So was that – it's uh, in like 2002 is when that started. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, actually, it was announced by Sid Bass, the chairman of architecture, on December 8th, 1997. Ten design teams were invited to participate in a design problem-solving exercise, including Yoshio Taniguchi, who got the commission. Got it. And the museum closed May 21st, 2002, and temporarily moved into a former Swing Line staple factory. Oh, that's incredible. Queens in Long Island City, correct? Exactly. I remember when they did that. That was pretty cool, actually. The mm-hmm. museum reopened with great fanfare November 20th, 2004, and reviews have been, w- reviews were mixed. I asked lots of people. I asked lots of artists. I asked art tour guides. The very same positives other people found negatives. People love the second floor contemporary art section. The ceiling, I don't even know how tall it is. It's Mm -hmm. like three stories tall, which means they can put in huge sculpture pieces. There are other rooms that also have high ceilings. What people also like are there's a lot of secret little windows and glass where as you're walking through the museum, You can see other people. You can see out into the streets of New York. Mm -hmm. You can see other exhibition rooms. Uh As you're in a Surratt room, you can see uh, Jackson Pollock in the next room. What's interesting, when I was asking people what they thought of the renovation... Without even being prompted, what people, what the big controversy seemed to be, the twenty dollars. 
<laughs> Everyone it had expensive. something to say about the $20. The old museum was $12. The new museum was $20. One gorilla artist paid with pennies well, to look, make a let's statement. Not scare, let's not scare our listeners. You can go on. It's free on Fridays. They call it Target Friday. Oh, yeah. It's sponsored by Target stores. So you can go in and you can see every foot of the 630 thousand square feet of the brand new museum it still is a place that is so marvelous because of just the things that it has the things that you can just walk up to and be in the same room with maybe not be alone in the same room with because there's a lot of people that go there so you know it has pieces of art like starry night like it has vincent van gogh starry night like eight million dorm rooms and the Museum of Modern Art yes, have the right. Starry Night, except it has the original. You know, Persistence of Memory by Salvador Dali. It's actually on loan, but it's returning in the spring. Water Lilies by Monet. I mean, just these are these are I, such iconic that you you know iconic. Aren't pieces the, of art. the soup cans are there too, right? The Andy's wall, yeah, Andy's uh-huh. soup cans. Christina's World, which is uh, you know which I love by Andrew Wyeth. La Demoiselle d'Avignon, I don't know if I'm saying that right, by Picasso. <laughs> and then my two personal favorites, I'm going to ask you what your favorite is here in a second. My two okay. personal favorites, though they're kind of old school, I have to admit, is The Sleeping Gypsy by Henri Housseau and the Broadway Boogie Woogie. I'm a big Mondrian fan, so that's my favorite. That's my favorite Mondrian. What is, I mean, what's your favorite? I don't have a favorite, but I do have to, I, I mean, that's just too tough for me. I, I mean, I really All right, do. You know have, what? Then I don't. But I won't what? Force you. But I what I you. wanted to bring up was one of the the best things I've seen there that is not permanent. However, it was last summer. Dan Perzhovsky did a live wall drawing on the second I floor. Rem- I, I I've been in there and I've seen the results of this. I haven't seen him do it, but I've seen the results of it. I, all I loved the wall. it. It's funny. It's I very loved funny. It. That, that's my favorite thing that I have ever seen. Well, recently, so then recently they've had exhibits on Edvard Munch, uh, Seurat, uh, Manet, Richard Serra, um, Russian architecture, and of course, Dada has come back to New York because there was a huge Dada oh, exhibit yeah. there. Oh, yeah. Yes, I went there with my mother. She loved it. Well, I highly recommend it, though. I do have to say that it gets a little crazy. A lot of people show up. I personally like either going there early in the morning or finding a gallery that isn't that popular and kind of like just getting into that. So in this particular case, and I I am a New Yorker. I hate crowds. But in this particular case, I love the MoMA crowd. It's mostly European people. I love Europe. I love traveling to Europe. <laughs> so I love seeing the European people reacting you're looking to the at art. The art. And you're looking at the people looking at the art. I was in Budapest earlier this year, mm-hmm. and I was speaking with a woman who said, if I ever go to New York, of all the things in New York, Greg, she said, if I ever go to New York. If anything in New York. The one thing I have to do is go to the MoMA. And I said, what, what is with that? Why is that? <laughs> Why? European... European people love the MoMA. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's always packed. And she said, well, you know, I can't speak for other Europeans. I can only speak for myself. But coming from a city that's a thousand years old, what seems incredible about the MoMA when I see pictures of it, it's so far removed from history. It's completely separate from history. It's in the now. It's in the future. There is nothing like it in Budapest. And it's possible there's nothing like it in all of Europe. Or in the world. Possibly. And on that note, listeners, thank you very much for 
taking a tour of, of the museum with me. I have to thank Carrie so much. You are so, have so much great information. It was so much fun. Anyway, thank you so much for listening, and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. Thank you.